Our scripture text this evening is in 2 Thessalonians. We're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And our focus will be on verses 13 through 15. We've already touched on these verses to some degree, but um, we're going to be seeing how verses 13 and 14 lead in particular up to verse 15. So hear God's word as I read this section of scripture, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, not Corinthians, Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Scripture teaches both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Jonah, for example, exalts God's sovereignty and salvation when he says salvation is of the Lord. Also emphasizing God's sovereignty, Jesus said in John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Ephesians 2, verse 1 reminds us that he has made us alive who were dead in our trespasses and sins. A few verses later in that same chapter, Ephesians 2, and then in verse 8, It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 One of the verses that I just read a moment ago records the Apostle Paul thanking God because God chose the Thessalonians for salvation. Paul sees the ultimate cause of these believers' salvation to be God's choice or God's election of them. And this is a verse among many others in Scripture that emphasizes God's sovereignty in salvation. And yet such verses must not be thought to be contradicted by verses that emphasize man's responsibility, man's responsibility to act and to respond to God. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, we are told, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And here in 2 Thessalonians, the context is the coming of the Antichrist and what will distinguish believers from unbelievers is, we are told, their response to the truth. Paul says that those who will follow the Antichrist are those who refuse to love the truth. If we go back to verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure 
in unrighteousness. And so those who fall prey to the Antichrist will be those who do not believe the truth. On the other hand, those who will not perish with the Antichrist are those who do believe the truth, and uh, they are therefore not deceived by the Antichrist. And so clearly the goal of verses 13 through 15, um, the goal is to urge you and me to respond to the truth in love and in faith, and the responsibility to act and to respond is yours. Uh, The way that Paul puts it is you are to stand firm and to hold to the traditions. But the question then is raised, well, how is it that we come to respond in this way? Uh, This emphasis on our duty must not be thought to be contradicted by the reality of God's sovereign work in salvation. Again, point out how in verse 13, Paul exalts God as the sovereign God who chose the Thessalonians um, for salvation. Without God taking this first step and choosing sinners for salvation, no salvation would take place. Without question, the Bible teaches that Our salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Salvation cannot possibly begin with sinful man who is dead in his trespasses and sins. In fact, without the continual work of the Holy Spirit keeping us united to Christ our Savior, we would drift away from Christ and would not be saved. Um, God is, like I said, uh, he saves us from beginning to end. But Paul also talks about the means that God uses to bring about and to maintain this salvation. And the reality is that sinners are normally saved through faith and through belief in the gospel. And I say normally because God does make exceptions for those elect infants and others who die without the ability uh, to hear and respond to the outward call of the gospel. Otherwise, the scriptures assume that we must hear the gospel and respond and uh, respond in belief to be saved. Uh, Romans 10 is the classic chapter on that. In verse 14, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And what we find here in 2 Thessalonians confirms both the necessity of our believing as well as the necessity of God's Holy Spirit working within us. And in our text, Paul brings out how both must be realities if salvation is to take place, and specifically if we are to stand strong against the deceptions of the Antichrist. He says that salvation is through, notice, sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's verse 13. Sanctification by the Spirit is something that God sovereignly does in the sinner's heart, while belief in the truth is something that we do in response to God's work. And to be saved, both must be realities in our lives. And I want to take a moment to explain what is meant by sanctification by the Spirit, as well as belief in the truth. Here, sanctification by the Spirit... Uh, when the apostle says saved through sanctification by the Spirit, we recognize that he's using the word sanctification here in a unique way uh, to speak of the entire work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Most of the time the word sanctification is used to refer to a very narrow aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in in, uh, salvation, but here the, the focus is widened 
Normally, as you think of sanctification, you are correct in thinking that it's simply that process, that, that ongoing work of the Holy Spirit making you holy like Christ. It, it's something that the Holy Spirit works in you as an already regenerated and justified converted sinner. Um, and it, so it's a work that logically uh, uh, is after those other works. Um, it, it's, it's, t- it's typically thought of as a work that God performs, like I said, in the born-again, justified sinner and something that happens our whole life long up until the time either Christ comes or, or we are with Christ in death, where at that moment we are perfected. Um, but here, and in a couple of other places in Scripture, the term sanctification is used in a broader way to refer to even the beginning of the Spirit's work, including regeneration and conversion that leads to justification. Uh, normally, we logically place justification after, um, or place, uh, excuse me, justification Uh, before sanctification and say that while sanctification is an ongoing process of God making us holy, justification comes first and is that one-time act of God declaring us to be righteous in his sight on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection and received by faith. But there is a sense in which we as justified sinners can be said to be already sanctified. Uh, That's what I want to, to bring home to you this evening The idea is that on the one hand, there is a sense in which we are already holy, and on the other hand, a sense in which we are being made holy. There are passages in Scripture where this term sanctification is used both ways. So normally, as I've pointed out, it's usually described as this ongoing work, and yet here in verse 13, sanctification is is described as something already accomplished early on in our lives as believers. And this makes sense when we understand the basic meaning of sanctification, which is to make holy, which means to to set something apart to God, to consecrate something to God so that it belongs to God. And if you think about it, we were made holy or sanctified when we were first regenerated and converted. At that moment of, of the Spirit's regeneration, as we are given new hearts, we are set apart to God, we are consecrated to God, we are given new hearts that, that, that lead us to, to serve God, and we, at that moment, belong to God. And when we are regenerated or born again by the Spirit, uh, we are raised from the dead spiritually, where before we were dead to Christ and to salvation, suddenly we are made alive toward God. We are made new creatures. We are enabled to seek God and his glory. Well, that's a radical change that can be described as sanctification. And it's appropriate to call the work of regeneration sanctification because it is, at, at, at its very heart, God working in our hearts to make us holy. It's even appropriate to refer to justification as following this work of sanctification because we are justified by faith that presupposes a new spiritual orientation toward God. It presupposes that you have been turned from sin, that you have been turned toward Christ, set apart from sin unto Christ. And this new sanctified self, this new sanctified heart then manifests itself in repentance and in faith unto justification. So we're talking about two ways of looking at sanctification in principle. That's the idea here. We are already sanctified. A, a, a fundamental sanctification has taken place as we now belong to God as his holy children 
by virtue of regeneration and conversion. By the way, conversion, by, it, that's simply a word that refers to the combination of, of repentance and faith. At the same time, being sanctified in principle does not mean that we are perfectly consecrated to God in our everyday lives. A radical change has taken place, yes, but our hearts are still uh, affected by the, the remnants of our corrupt nature. And so we still sin and we long for God to give us in actuality, in completeness, what we have in principle. We long for the day when we will no longer sin, the day when we, we will be fully devoted to God with all of our being. And of these two possible then uses of the term sanctification, our passage I believe is using it in the broad sense. It's referring to that principal change in your life when by a work of the Holy Spirit, your heart was changed toward God. Um, an unholy heart was made into a holy heart. An unholy Christian was made into someone, I mean, I should say unholy sinner made into a Christian who is in that sense holy, oriented now toward God. And so sanctification in this instance is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit leading you to repentance and to belief in the truth. Um, this sanctification is necessary for your salvation. Uh, no sinner ever responds to the truth of the gospel with belief except by this work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. And at the same time, there is this human responsibility side of things. For the elect sinner who has been sanctified by the Spirit now can and does and must respond to the gospel with belief in the truth. Consider the message of the gospel comes to you as a human being with a will and with desires, and the gospel calls you to respond. Never does scripture call you to just sit back and wait for God to act on you before you act. Uh, to the contrary, you are obligated to respond to God and to the call of the gospel. You must respond with belief to the message of the gospel. Um, you must respond acknowledging that you are a sinner who needs Christ for salvation. Yes, it is God who chooses who will be saved. It is the elect whom he sanctifies by his spirit. Salvation is by God's sovereign choice, and yet this does not change the reality that for you to be saved, you must believe. Man is left by God with a choice to make through the call of the gospel, and man has the liberty to do what he wants to do, and if he rejects God in salvation, he does so willingly, and he's held responsible for his choice, and of course, if he makes that choice, he will be condemned to hell. But if he accepts God and the salvation that is offered in Christ, he also does so willingly, and in fact, there is great incentive to do so, for belief in the gospel is graciously blessed by God with eternal life. So let us now follow Paul's line of thought and apply these principles in the context of the coming of the Antichrist. Paul's clearly saying that future events, the coming of the Antichrist, are going to serve to distinguish believers from unbelievers. Paul's explained that there are going to be many who are going to follow the Antichrist. Many are going to be deceived. Many are going to be condemned. On the other hand, God thanks uh, Paul thanks God that the Thessalonians, as he looks at the church there in Thessalonica, he's thankful that they clearly have been chosen for salvation. By God's grace, the Thessalonians have shown themselves to be different 
from those who will perish with the Antichrist. So what is different about them? What does Paul see in them? Well, when they heard the gospel, there was a response of belief in the truth. By way of contrast, the followers of the Antichrist, remember, will be those who refused to love the truth and so be saved. Um, just as with salvation itself, there are two perspectives by which to understand these differences between these two groups. On the one hand, there is the perspective of God's sovereignty. The Thessalonians believed the truth because God chose them for salvation. Again, he sanctified them by the Spirit. And the result of that sovereign work of giving them a new heart was their belief in the truth. On the other hand, there is the perspective of responsibility, man's responsibility to receive the truth in love. Man is called by the gospel to respond unto salvation. And many people are right now spiritually ready to receive the Antichrist because, as Paul says, they have pleasure in unrighteousness. They desire, they, they love unrighteousness. And um, there are unbelievers right now who then will be deceived by this Antichrist if he comes in their lifetimes because clearly they don't want the truth. And Thessalonians, on the other hand, Paul could know would not be deceived because he knows of their attitude toward the truth. And so the great question that is being asked as Paul brings us to verse 15 is this, what do you and I need to do in order to stand strong against the forces of wickedness, against the Antichrist? What actions do you and I need to take to ensure that we're not going to be deceived, that we're not going to fall prey uh, to the, the wiles of Satan? The scripture tell us to hide behind God's sovereignty and believe that God is just going to preserve us no matter what we do. In other words, are we to trust in our election? There are some who on the basis uh, of some basis have, have convinced themselves that they are among those chosen for salvation. Um, they would say, well, I believe I'm the elect and Knowing that the elect will be saved, they conclude that how they live is irrelevant. And on the surface, that may sound logical, since not one of God's elect will in the end be lost. They make the assumption that they can be lazy in their Christian life, that they can even live a life of sin, and they're going to be okay. But in thinking that way, a dangerous assumption is being made, and the assumption is that they are, in fact, elect. If... Uh, if I, if I just simply think I am elect, that doesn't make me elect. Um, am I elect simply because that's what I think? Um, we need to face the question, how can I know I am elect? It's true that if you are elect, you will be saved. But if you are elect, you are not going to use election as an excuse to be lazy in your Christian life. Scripture condemns that perspective. If you use grace as an excuse for sin, then you really don't know, you really don't know grace. If you use God's sovereignty as an excuse to sit back and do nothing, you are testing God and you are ignoring how God uses means to accomplish his will. When God works in your life, there's going to be a response in the form of action and of obedience and of striving after holiness. The elect born-again Christian hears God speak in his word and responds. When he says, believe the gospel, if you are elect and the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, you're going to believe. 
when God says, I want you to obey my law, if you are elect and regenerated, sanctified by the Spirit of God, you will strive to obey. When God says, I want you to do something because it will help you to be strong spiritually, if you are elect and again sanctified by the Spirit, you will do it. It isn't that any elect Christian is going to be perfect in listening to God, but the true Christian gives evidence of positive response to God, as well as giving evidence that there is change going on in his life and he's working at obedience. The truly elect sinner repents over his sin and over his failures, and as evidence of true repentance and faith, he strives to improve in his his walk with the Lord. And what we have then in verse 15 is God telling you and me how to stand firm against the Antichrist. And this instruction, if you are elect, if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, you are going to take this instruction to heart. You are going to make it a part of your life. If you are elect, you're going to take this instruction seriously. It's not true that the Christian is just going to be automatically able to stand against the deceptions of the Antichrist. God preserves his people, yes, he keeps them in salvation, yes, but he does it by using means. And a a key means in all of this is his word. When God's word comes to his people, that word inspires us to respond with action. And so the word that the apostle has, that the Holy Spirit has for us, he says, so then, brother, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, whether by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold to the traditions, he says. If you want to stand firm, hold to the traditions. Now, all of us, I think, are familiar with traditions. Those are the ways of thinking and behaviors. It can involve customs, um, typically practices that are handed down from one generation to the next. Uh, They are beliefs. They are practices that have a history going back in time. Many of our aspects of our lives are influenced by traditions, whether we know it or not. There are traditions in our families connected typically with such things as birthdays and holidays. Um, It's a tradition in our country to have turkey, for example, on Thanksgiving. And there may be traditions in how you do your work. Um, No one does things the same way. Households are not run the same way. Um, Many of these differences in practice can be traced back to how you were taught growing up. How did mom and dad do things? How did grandpa and grandma and great-grandpa and grandma do things? There's also the reality of traditions in our church life. Every church has its own way of doing things. We get together uh, for a fellowship meal after morning worship on the first Sunday of the month. That's a tradition. We celebrate the Lord's Supper on the second Sunday. We have many other customs that have been handed down over the years, and they probably will continue. Uh, Many, if not all, of these traditions have been useful. They've been good. And yet, for some traditions just in general, and in every case, traditions are perceived to be the enemy of spiritual revival. There's a tendency among churches of our day and age to equate the new and the innovative with growth and progress. And for some, the way to get, away, to get away from spiritual deadness and complacency in the church is to essentially change everything. And at the center of this is often what it means to worship. Change the music, change the liturgy, change the style of sermons, change the length of the service, change, change, change. Everything gets a makeover. 
And it must be granted that there are some long-standing traditions that can certainly be a hindrance to spiritual life in the church. Not necessarily, certainly not always, but sometimes traditions can be a problem. Sometimes circumstances change in the life of the church or in the world outside of the church, and the church does need to adjust these traditions in order to minister more effectively. And so to persist with a certain tradition might be, in fact, detrimental. We are to not become like the scribes and Pharisees who had many traditions that were man-made, but who, who considered these man-made traditions to be just as important or even more important and, and as necessary as God's commandments themselves. The other danger that we must avoid is allowing traditions to become a matter of judging others. We can begin to think that our traditions are so important and so necessary that others who do not follow these traditions are sinning or at the very least not the strong Christians that we are. We need to constantly evaluate what we do and remember what a tradition, what is a tradition, and um, that it may or may not be a matter of biblical commands and principles. So we would hope agree that God's word is clear that there is to be preaching of the word in our worship services. That is something that should be continued at all costs because it is a practice clearly grounded in God's word. But the tradition of having the sermon, the preaching of the word at a certain point in the order of worship, that's a tradition that could be changed without violation of God's word. There are other traditions that aren't grounded as well in any definite command of scripture and so we ought to be willing to change them if, if we so desire, um, but not simply changing a tradition for, for change's sake. Most have some value, and as long as there's no biblical um, good reason to change them, we can keep them, and most traditions have stood the test of time and for good reason. Notice that up until this point, I've been focusing on traditions that really have to do more with practices, but what about beliefs? There's a a tradition to our beliefs as well. And it is this tradition of doctrine and of teaching that Paul especially here has in mind when he tells the Thessalonians to hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, uh, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul here, he is focusing specifically on beliefs, on biblical teachings, that have been handed down. And it's likely that there were also practices handed down because practices and beliefs often come together. What a person believes always affects what he does, and yet the Holy Spirit's main concern here is clearly our relationship to the truth. We have to to get our practice right. We have to first get our doctrine right. Correct doctrine and beliefs always come first. And what Paul is telling the Thessalonians is that to stand firm against the Antichrist, against his deceptions, you must hold to the traditions that you were taught. Notice the relationship here of of the words that Paul uses. The idea is that you are to stand firm by holding to the traditions. Stand firm by holding to the traditions. And he calls his teaching traditions because they were not his own ideas but were handed down to him from others. Who was it that taught him? 
Where did he get these teachings that he has handed down to the Thessalonians? I, earlier I read from Galatians chapter 1. You maybe perhaps wondered what was the purpose of that. Well, Paul's own account given there is that he was taught by Jesus Christ himself. That's the point. He says the gospel that he taught was not man's gospel. He didn't even receive it initially from the apostles. Now, of course, he also met with the other apostles, and he mentions that as well, who had also been taught by Jesus. His beliefs were confirmed by the other apostles. They certainly evaluated what he was teaching, what he believed, and uh, those the, the teachings that he claimed to have received by Christ lined up with what they also had been taught by Jesus. Paul also had, we could say, the tradition of the Old Testament scriptures. And when Paul calls his teachings traditions, he's emphasizing that he is not bringing some new, some innovative teaching, some new line of theology that he or his companions have recently made up. No, he is teaching the truth as he was taught by Christ himself Truth that is in accord with the scriptures that have already been given. His faith, he is saying, is the faith of the fathers. People of God, it is important and it is good in the area of our beliefs to be grounded in tradition. You always ought to look with suspicion upon new doctrines or even new ways of expressing doctrines. And what will help you and I to stand strong in our faith is to be holding to the truth as it has been established in the church for generations. And what's related to this is our confessions. Essentially, we have the tradition of our faith summarized for us in our confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms. These provide for us a summary of a Christian faith that goes back to the apostles a faith that has stood the test of time as the church has examined these doctrines in the light of Scripture generation after generation. See, it's important that the tradition that we hold on to, this tradition of truth, is one which is grounded in Scripture and which has proven over time to keep the church grounded in Christ. We're talking about doctrines that glorify Christ that, and that bring lasting and spiritual comfort and strength to God's people. Like the saints of old, we believe that our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone without any works or any other additions of man. And of course, our first and highest standard for faith and life even the standard that, that, that governs our secondary standards of, of our confessions is God's word, God's word alone, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the cross of Christ where Jesus gave himself as the sacrifice for sin to satisfy God's justice. And we ought to recognize that all false doctrine in some way or another minimizes the importance of Christ, minimizes God's grace in Christ, tries to give man a place of prominence and importance. The doctrine that exalts God's grace and that emphasizes man's utter helplessness is the tradition of the Reformed faith. It's It's a tradition Going back many, many years, many generations, that is what we have been taught. And so in conclusion, take with you this truth, this principle that to stand firm against false doctrine and ultimately against the Antichrist, you must love the truth of God's word.
How do you show you love the truth? You hold to the traditions which you are taught. This is God's word to you. And if you are one of the elect, you'll take these words to heart. You will obey this word. And this is your responsibility because this is a key way, a way that God has ordained, that God in his plan to protect you and to save you, he has set this up as a way to protect you from the judgment that is to come, the judgment that will come on the Antichrist and his followers. He says to you, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. That, brothers, is the way to protection, to safety. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for these words. We thank you that there is a tradition that we can recognize how your spirit has guided your church into the truth, and that there have been believers that share the same beliefs that we have going back generation after generation, clear back to the time of the apostles who learned these truths directly from Christ himself. Father, we want to continue to remain in that tradition, the tradition that is clearly revealed in your word. Lord, we pray that you would spare us from any false doctrine. We pray that you would continue to protect us, that we would then stand strong against any of the false doctrine that comes through uh, Satan and the Antichrist and Antichrists that that come along. Lord, uh, protect us from those who are setting up a false kingdom over against the kingdom of Christ. Lord, may we clearly see, may we have eyes to see because we are grounded in the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that we would be very leery of new doctrines that we hear, or new ways of expressing these doctrines, recognizing that there is a tradition that we are to follow. So Lord, give us a love for the truth. Help us to recognize this very practical way uh, of keeping us safe in the truth. And uh, Father, we pray that in this way, we would be found uh, on the day of Christ's return, uh, those people who have been sanctified by your spirit and who have belief in the truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.